You may be seated. You know, last week, um, we were in John chapter 4, and we were looking, taking a close-up look at the words that, jo- that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Uh, and uh, when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we began to unpack that, and we saw that what Jesus meant by that was this, is that what truly made life worth living for him, what truly nourished him, sustained him, and what truly satisfied him at the very core of his being was to submit himself fully and completely to the will of God for his life. And the will of God for his life we identified last week was for him to reconcile sinful men with a holy God by giving his life and offering his life up on the cross for sinners in order to be able to reconcile them with God once again. And what's amazing about what he did is we found out that for him to do the will of God was not an end unto itself, but rather a means to an end. In other words, the reason he sought to do the will of God is because his desire was to glorify God. His desire was to demonstrate and to recognize and to cherish God is infinitely and supremely valuable ever over everything else in this world. And that's what he wanted to declare. And that's what he did by going to the cross. When he obeyed God, humbled himself and became obedient to God's will for his life, even to the point of death and death on a cross, He glorified God by saying, the most important thing to me in this life is not physical health or monetary wealth or popularity amongst men. The world says that these are the things you are to live for. These are the things that that the world has to offer. These are the greatest things that we can have in this world. And Jesus says, they may be great, but there's something far greater. And the greatest value and the greatest wonder and the greatest love of my life is God himself. That's why he was willing to submit himself even to the point of death and death on a cross. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus um, would say such a thing, that Jesus would do everything for the glory of God. Why? Because that's what God does. God does everything for his glory. God has done everything he's ever done in the past everything he's doing right now amongst us, even right now as we speak, and everything that God will do in the future is to declare his infinite worth and value over everything in the universe. Are you with me? That's what drives God is God's glory. Now, with that purpose established from last week, we, we quickly begin to understand that there's a problem. We talked a bit about that problem last week. And that is, even though he has created all men and all women for his glory, that means everybody, not just you and I, but everybody who's ever existed, no matter where they're from, no matter what country they live in, no matter what clothes they wear, no matter what language they speak, if you are a human being, God's precise and specific purpose for that life, for yours and mine and everyone else, was to glorify God. The problem is, there are multitudes of people not doing that thing. They are not doing the very thing that God had created them to do. Instead, because of their sin in which they were born in, because of their depravity, they could not see the infinite worth of God. They were blinded to it. And so, because they were created to worship, they had to worship something. So, because they couldn't see how good God was, they begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. 
And so, as you can imagine, because God has created and desires to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise in which he is, he is, he is due, there's a problem because his creation is not doing it. And so, therefore, that brings us to our second theme today, and that's God's plan. God has a plan of getting all those who are worshiping the created things to come back and begin to worship him once again. And that's what we want to speak about, but I believe it's what we see his plan so clearly here within the word of God in John chapter 4. Now, remember, just in the beginning of chapter 4, as an introduction last week, I I just simply said that Jesus and his disciples, uh, they were in Judea and they wanted to make their way to Galilee. Do some of you remember this? And what we find is the normal path that they would have taken was to travel all the way around Samaria. It was a long path and tedious path all the way around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. But we found in chapter 4 and verse 4 that the Bible says that Jesus chose a different route. He chose a direct route to go directly through the heart of Samaria uh, in order to get to Galilee. And and the reason for that is because the Bible says in verse 4 that he had to. He had to because there was a divine appointment that he had with a Samaritan woman at a well at the heat of the day. At the hottest part of the day, he was going to meet a woman and forever change her life. Now, it's important for us to understand the fact that he met her at the hottest part of the day in the sixth hour, the word of God says. It tells us something about this woman. It tells us about this woman that she is a person who does not want to be around anybody else. That in the heat of the day, to go and to be able to draw water from a well, which is very difficult work to do, for her to go out in the heat of the day, which usually was not done, uh, she's going because nobody else is there during that day. Nobody's there. They usually come in the early part of the day or the latter part of the day when it's much cooler. And now she comes at the hottest part of the day because she knows nobody else is going to be there because she would rather put up with, with, with the glare of the sun beaming on her than the glare of the judgmental eyes of those that she lives among. This is a woman that wants nothing to do with people. So she comes to be alone, but it just so happens that Jesus... It meets her, and she, he's leaning, this man is leaning up against this well that she comes to draw water from. And Jesus here, in the beginning, he begins to engage the woman to demonstrate God's plan. And in the beginning, he asks her, he says, hey, listen, uh, uh, he doesn't even ask her, he just says, hey, give me some water. And she turns to him, and she's completely shocked by this, because remember, she's a Samaritan, he's a Jew, and she even begins to reason with him. She says, what is it that you, a a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, don't you understand that we hate each other? Why in the world would you ask me for water? And so at this particular point, when God engages her, he then begins to draw her attention to her need. At this point, he says to her in verse 10, chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then he continues on in verse, uh, in verse 13, he says, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him as a spring of living uh, of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, what he's doing is he's drawing her attention to her need, 
But she, at this point, thinks her greatest need is physical and emotional. She thinks her greatest need is no longer have to toil over pulling this water out of this well, nor have to go through the emotional turmoil of coming down to this place where everybody in the whole village could mock her. She thinks that's her need, is to be delivered from that. But what Jesus is doing is he is drawing her attention away from her perceived need to her true need. And her true need was not physical or emotional. Her true need was spiritual. And so he draws her attention away from that. From, from, she draws her attention to her need. And then at this particular point, because she's not quite getting it, because she's, she thinks it's physical, he then draws her attention to her condition. Now notice what he says in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. He says, and then she says to him in return, he says, what you have said, he says, what you have said is true. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Immediately, Jesus exposes something in her that that there's no way he could have possibly known apart from some kind of supernatural action happening. And so she begins to realize very quickly that this is more than just a regular, mere, common Jewish man. This, he is at least a prophet at this particular point. Now, what I think is interesting is how she responds. Says the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place uh, where people ought to worship. Now, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. Jesus just comes at this point and he exposes her for the sinner that she is, for the sin that's in her life. And immediately she wants to argue religion. Isn't that interesting? She just sits there and she goes, oh yeah? Uh, she just, he basically just pulled back the bandages and exposed her sinfulness. And she sits there and she wants to argue where the appropriate place to worship is. Now, let me give you some history of what she's doing. The, the Jews believed you were to worship in Jerusalem and they were right. The Samaritans who were half-breeds, they were only part Jew, were not accepted by the Jews and weren't allowed to worship in Jerusalem there at the temple. So they said, you won't let us worship there? We'll build our own temple. So they took the exact specifications of that temple and they built it at Mount Gerizim. And what they did is they began to worship there because they weren't allowed by the Jews to worship in Jerusalem. So for generations, they begin to argue, where's the true place of worship? And so what she does is she wants to argue with him and debate with him about really what religion is better and what religion is true. What is she doing? She's trying to cover up. That's what she's trying to do. She's doing the same exact thing that Adam and Eve did in the beginning. The moment that they begin to realize that they were sinners, what did they want to do, their natural response? Cover up. And all they could cover up with in their nakedness of their sin and their shame and their disgrace is they just wanted to cover up. So they grabbed these leaves and they begin to cover themselves. This woman right here standing before the very eyes of God is exposed for the sinner that she is and she knows nothing else to do but to cover up. And one of the greatest ways to cover up is to begin to talk about religion. And if you've ever shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody, and I pray that you have, you know that that is something that people do all the time. 
when I engage them and begin to talk about them, Jesus, and their condition before God and how they know whether they'll be allowed into heaven or not, immediately they, they, they want to talk about religion. They'll sit there and say, well, listen, you're a Baptist preacher. I didn't grow up Baptist. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Methodist or I'm a Catholic or I'm a this or I'm a that. And I sit there and go, I don't want to talk about religion. I'm not talking about religion. But their natural response is to immediately back up and want to argue with you about religion and which is right and which is wrong. Why? Because they feel vulnerable and they they desire to cover up. So Jesus is doing everything and he's leading this woman in the perfect way. And then what he does is after drawing her attention to her need and then to her condition, then what he does is he draws her attention to the nature of worship. So what he does is he, he, he changes the argument from where you are to worship or the place of worship to the true nature and essence of what worship is really all about. He's not going to get sidetracked in all this argumentation. So what he does, he takes her to the nature, and this is what he says. She says to, she sa- he says in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What he's saying is, the issue is no longer where you worship that's not what's important. It's how you worship that is important. So he goes on, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, stop right there just for a minute. Now, what he's doing is he's going into the gospel presentation right here. And what he's doing is he's giving her bad news. Here's the bad news. Before there could be good news, there has to be bad news, right? Uh, that's why sometimes when you and I, we get a little bit anxious to share the gospel with people, and we sit there and say, did you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And they're sitting there going, man, I wish he hadn't gone and done that. I'm really not all that bad of a person, right? So you think this good news is so great, but the reason is, is because, because you understand the bad news before you understood the good news. So he comes and he exposes her to the bad news and very clearly he tells her, you worship what you do not know. In other words, Jesus sits there and says, hey, you worship. He's not denying the fact that she worships. All of us were created to worship, right? The question is, what are you worshiping? And he says, you worship what you do not know. He says, here's the bad news. Hey, the good news is you worship. The bad news is You are worshiping a God that you have built in your own depraved, wicked, fallen mind and heart. You've created your own concept of what God is. And he goes, but there is a one true God. And here's the bad news. You are not worshiping him. You neither know him nor are you worshiping him. Do you see that? That's the bad news. If you're apart from Jesus Christ and you've never placed, repented of your sin and placed your faith with him, you're in the same place of this woman this, this morning. You are worshiping, but you are worshiping a God that you do not know, the God of heaven. And he says there, that, notice this, he says, but on the other side, look, he says, he says but the Jews do know, is what he says here in the word. He says, he says and the, why do they know that? He says, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Look, we know as we look through the word of God, time and time again, the people, the Jewish people are failing, 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 right? You just read it and you're like, man, can't these people ever get it together? But if there's one thing that they had going for themselves, it was the fact that a holy God sovereignly revealed himself to them. 
He chose before the foundations of the earth to take this little teeny group of people and reveal who he was to them and to reveal to them how he was going to redeem the world. He told them how he was going to take those who were idolaters and turn them into glorified worshipers of the only God. He had shared their plan with them. But because of their disobedience to propagate that message, to be a blessing to all the other nations around the world, guess what he did? He sat there and said, because they rejected, Jesus Christ opened up that opportunity and opened up the truth of the gospel for the rest of us, for the Gentiles, because of their rejection. And so we see that here is the bad news, but notice he then goes into the good news. Here it is right here. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here. He says, when the true worshipers, see, remember, there's worshipers, but then there's true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he goes, notice this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He says, listen, there is a God who created all people for his glory to worship him They've all gone astray. They begin to worship the created things rather than the creator. And then notice this. He goes, now God is searching for those that he could call back to himself to become true worshipers of me. And how are they going to go about becoming true worshipers? He says, they must worship me in spirit, number one, and truth, number two. What does it mean by spirit? What does he mean by that? Well, something tragic happened. We've talked about this time and time again. Back when Adam and Eve sinned, before they sinned, they were alive unto God. They had a spirit that, 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 uh, that communicated and, 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 and committed itself to God and communed with God. But when they sinned, death entered into the world. Immediately, death began to come upon them, and they began to age at that very moment. But their spirit that was inside of them, that which could commune with God, began to die. Now, why is this so awful? Why is this so significant? It's significant because he says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says the bad news is when we are sinners, that means the spirit of us that connects with God, that communicates with God, that communes with God is dead, and we have no way of fellowshipping with him anymore because that which we need, a spirit that is alive, is now dead. And now how is Jesus going to bring that spirit alive? When we repent and place our faith in him, what happens? He regenerates us. That spirit which was dead now comes alive, and it becomes alive unto God, and it becomes alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, who comes and now dwells where? In you. And he comes and dwells in me, So this is why Jesus says, listen, it's no longer important for us to argue about where where you should worship. That's not even a question anymore. It's how you worship. Why? Because God does not dwell in, in, in a church that's made with hands, but rather in the soul and in the heart of every true believer of Jesus Christ. And so we become worshipers of him through the power of the Holy Spirit by him coming and indwelling in us. He says, so he's seeking those who will worship him in spirit, Being born again allows us to do just that. And in what? In truth. People cannot worship what they do not know. People all around the world are worshiping, but they cannot worship a true God that they do not know. Are you with me? 
The world around us tells us something about God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. We can look around and we are without excuse, Romans 1 tells us. We cannot deny that there is a God because we see that we know there's a creator because we see his creation, we see his handiwork all around us. But through his general revelation of his creation of the world, we can't know how to be made right with God. That truth has to be revealed to us. And Jesus says, that's what's happening right now. At one time, it was only revealed to the Jews. And that means the rest of the world could not worship the one true God because they did not know him. But right now, even now at this time, he goes, guess what? That revelation has come. That truth has come. The gospel has come. Now, people through the work of God can now worship him in spirit and in truth. That's God's plan for restoring those idolaters to God worshipers. Now, God, Jesus engaged the woman to demonstrate God's plan, but then notice this, Jesus revealed in this passage th- at least three truths concerning God's plan. The first thing he reveals is this. He reveals the means to salvation. Now, notice what happens after he shares the gospel with this woman. In verse 25, She sits there and she says, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So this is what she's doing, all right? She's backed up completely and she says, listen, what you say makes sense. What you say uh, is clear of how we can have a right relationship with God. She says, but here's the deal. There is one who is coming who is the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to clear up all of this for us. He's going to tell us the way, and he's going to make a way for us to finally have a right relationship with him. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the reason worth living. He says this right To this woman, he goes, I'm the means, the means of God's plan by which he would take unconverted, lost, blasphemous idolaters and and, and bring them back to the very purpose and to live out the purpose that we're created was through the person of Jesus Christ. So he reveals the means, but then he also reveals the method. He revealed the method to reach worshipers. If you back up just for a minute, what did Jesus do? He came to seek and to save that which is lost. We see a beautiful example of it right here. He says in verse 4, I must go. He had to go to Samaria. Why? Because there was a lost woman there that God had chosen before the foundations of the earth who was worshiping a false god. So Jesus took it upon himself to go. He went where the gospel was not. He shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, of himself. And there she came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was demonstrating the method of how these idolaters would be good God worshipers. But there's one more thing that happens here. Let me unpack this a little bit more. The The third thing he does is he revealed the mission of his people. And this is where we're going to camp out for the last couple minutes. 
You remember what happens after this. As, she be- as he says this, then the, the, the disciples come back, and they come back from, from the town, and they had been there to buy some food, and they come back. And listen to what they're saying. He said, they marveled that he was talking with this woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So here's their question. They don't ask it, but they're thinking it. Why is he talking with this woman? Jews don't talk with these Samaritan scum women. Why in the world is he engaging her? Jesus takes the rest of this chapter to explain exactly why he is doing this. They sit there and they begin to go back and forth. She goes off and she begins, she leaves there and she goes back to her town and she begins to witness in verse 29, come see a man who said to me, come see, uh, come see a man who, who told me uh, all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Now notice this, we read this the last week. Meanwhile, the disciples come and all they can think about is the physical, right? They come to him and they go, master, eat, rabbi, eat. Here, here's your food. And he sits there and says, man, I've got food that you don't know of. I've got something that drives me more than my passion for the material things of this world. He says, what is that? What do you think it is? It's reaching idolaters and transforming them into purposeful worshipers for the glory of God. He says, that's my purpose. But then in turn, he says, and it's your mission. It's not only my mission, I've modeled it for you, but now I'm commanding you that this is going to be the same mission that I came, is going to be now the same mission that you are part of to go and do the same. Notice what he says in verse uh, 35. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Now, this is very hard to interpret what's going on here. Some have suggested that maybe this was a saying during that day, a cultural saying amongst the Jews. Hey, there are four months to the, to, to, to the harvest. It was just a regular slang saying that meant something during that day, and we've just kind of lost the significance of it. So others suggest that really what had probably just happened is that the disciples had been talking about food and, and maybe that there wasn't a whole lot out there for them to get a heart, part of, and they're looking into the fields, and as they look into the fields, they say, hey, look, there's just still four more months before the harvest time. And so Jesus, as he does so well, he takes their, 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 their concentration on the physical and he draws it to the spiritual and he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What's going on here? When they look up their eyes, what are they seeing? A bunch of crops? No, what they're doing is they're seeing all the Samaritan people that are coming from that town Right now, they finally are making their way to Jesus Christ. And he says, look up. He goes, because now the fields are white with harvest. It's harvest time. You don't have to wait anymore. Worshippers, there's a whole crop of worshipers that are coming to faith in God. Look at them. Look up, he says. And he sees them all coming. And Jesus says at this point, he says, already the one who reaps is, is receiving wages and he's gathering fruit for eternal life. He's talking about the disciples because they're about to reap this harvest of souls that are about to come in. And he says, so the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Let me unpack this for you. He says, I have called you 
to be on the same mission and the same plan of God to go out and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said there's basically two parts to this. There are those that plant and there are those that reap that harvest. He says, you are about to reap what you did not sow. Now, who sowed the seed of the gospel? Who sowed the seed of the gospel into the heart of these people? A lot of different ideas. Some theologically say he's referring to the prophets that came before them. Even John the Baptist, uh, who was preaching in this very area, telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Others ultimately say that it was Jesus himself. Because he's the one that first poured into this woman, sought this woman out, and shared the gospel with her. Others have suggested that it's the woman herself, and I, and I tend to believe it could be all, but I kind of lean on that. That this woman who just came to faith in Christ went to her hometown, began to share the gospel with her hometown, and guess what? Now they're all coming. They're coming to Jesus because of her testimony, right? And so they're all coming out, and Jesus is looking, look at the harvest. You didn't even sow in this. But you get to reap with it. And he says, so basically, here's the deal. You're going to be a part of God's plan. But Jesus, in essence, is saying, you've got an important part. But you can never receive the glory. Because you may sow and you may reap. You may be the final one that sees that person come to faith in Jesus Christ. But only God gives life. Only God can change them. Only God can save them. This is exactly what we see later in the Word of God in the book of 1 Corinthians. You guys might remember this story. When, when, When Paul, when the people in Corinth are beginning to argue back and forth, hey, some of us are of Apollos, some of us are of Paul. In other words, they say, listen, this guy is the greatest apostle because he led me to faith in Christ. And others are saying, no, Apollos is greater because he led me to faith in Christ. And so Paul sits there and he goes, guys, you're missing the point. He says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? He goes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see that? He says, you're a big part of this plan. He says, but you can't get the glory because all you are is you could sow the seed He goes, you could even lead people to faith in God. He goes, but the bottom line is, only I get the glory because only I can convert, only I can change, only I can save. Now, here's the question, here's the deal. We see here God's plan. God's plan is to use his people to go to those who do not know the gospel, do not have the gospel, and to share that gospel so that those who are idolaters will now become God worshipers and fulfill the very purpose why they were created. Now, here's the question. Is this plan clearly laid out in the word of God? Absolutely. It's all the way through the word of God. It's clear in God's plan. God's plan is clear. uh, God's plan is evident in Jesus' promise to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. Just read along. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God's plan is evident in the final command uh, of the risen, all authoritative Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you 
always to the end of the age. God's plan is evident in Paul's holy ambition. Listen to his heart. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build upon someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those, have never, th- those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. God's plan is evident in the sending and filling of the Holy Spirit to his people. He says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Everywhere in his word is his plan clearly stated of how he would go about fulfilling his purpose that all of creation would come and worship him. Now the question is this. This is the final point for us as we close. Jesus now calls us to take part in God's plan. How will God propagate the gospel? Why is it important that the gospel, that the good news, Jesus saw it to be good for him to take the good news to this woman who did not know about God. She needed the gospel to be saved. Romans 10 tells us, That what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let me state very clearly, a person cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Very clear? So how in the world is the gospel going to go forth to all of these millions and billions of people who do not have the gospel? Who are worshiping, but they were worshiping the created things rather than the creator How's it going to get there? And the simplest way, the simplest way to state that, through us, through you and me. God could have chosen any way to be able to share the gospel because he is all creator, but in his own sovereign will, he has chosen you and me to propagate the gospel, both across the street and around the world, to where the gospel is not. Now, here's the deal. He could have done it in any other way. He could have done it through rocks. Matter of fact, it seems like a great way to do it. Everywhere you go, there seems to be a rock, right? My, I know because my kids are constantly throwing them, no matter where we go. Pick up a rock and throw the rock. And I'm saying that Jesus could have said, I'm going to use rocks to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all they would do is you'd sit there and you'd go kick a rock and they'd say, excuse me, before you kick me, do you mind if we talk? Let me share something to you. You know, it could have been through so many other things. It could have been through birds. The birds of the air could have done, they could have either spoken in, in their song, they could have sung the gospel. Wouldn't that have been nice in the morning? Right when somebody's waking up and they wake up and stretch and there's the bird. Jesus loves you. And she, they just does their bird. Or they fly from place to place with, 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 with gospel packets, you know, in their beaks and in their claws and they're just dropping it down to everybody in the world. Man, that would be so much easier. Or God could have just written it in the sky. Man, just skywriting with the clouds. He created them. Can he just write it out, the gospel in the sky? And I'll just sit there and go, wow, check that, the gospel, John 3, 16, right in the sky, that's awesome. Or, you know, he could have aligned the stars to do it. He placed them in the heavens. He could have used angels. How awesome would that have been? Right? Michael, the archangel, massive glorious, standing in front of you, you need to get right with Jesus, right? Okay, I'll get right with him, right? They can move instantly from place to place, appear and reappear wherever, 
faster than the speed of light, right? They, they're just not, they're just not, uh, they're, they, could, they could move, all right? That's the point. But he didn't do any of these. He, in his sovereign will, and he didn't choose any of them. Why? Because in his sovereign knowledge, he understood something. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the song and the message of redemption is most powerful when the redeemed are the ones that speak it. And the rocks and the stars and the clouds and even the angels, even though they may look into the things of salvation, they have never been redeemed. So, so those who have come to the powerful, life-transforming power of my spirit, who have been regenerated and their eyes have been opened to see the infinite glory and worth and supremacy of God, now they are to go and declare the infinite supremacy of God to those who are blinded. That's who. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is only delivered. We have to understand that when we deliver it, because it will only go when we go, and because it's only shared when you and I share it, and it only goes where we go, and it's only proclaimed when you and I proclaim it, you and I have a great responsibility that God has placed on us. Great, huge responsibility He's placed on us. But why? What is our motivation? Well, let me say this. First of all, our motivation could be this. First of all, it could, be, it could simply be compassion. We who know that those who do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ are doomed and damned to an eternal, fiery hell, that should stir us. It certainly stirred Jesus when Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 says, when, they saw the, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep uh, with, without a shepherd. And when we go to them, there should be an essence of, uh, of feeling uh, compassion for those people. And, and we should be motivated. Why? Because we're not trying to bring misery on them. We're trying to bring upon greatest joy for them. I love what Piper says. He says, missions is not a recruitment project for God's labor force. It is a liberation project from heavy burdens and hard yokes of other false gods. When you bring the good news of Jesus Christ, they're miserable because they're worshiping the created things. You're liberating them from that and saying, there's something greater. There's something more awesome. But here's the problem. We can't always just simply be motivated by compassion because the truth of the matter is, it's hard to be compassionate about people who are faceless and nameless. That's, why, that's, that's exactly why when you go and pick up a frame, there's not really a whole lot to that frame. You go and get a frame at the store and it's got the model on there, smiling, these beautiful people. You don't even take note of that person. You take it, crumple it up, you throw it away. Why? There's a person, but you don't know their name. You don't know who they are. You replace it with somebody that you know and that's what gives you the affection because you know them, right? So you and I are not motivated primarily because of compassion for people we do not know. It's there and it builds when we get to see them. You may not be compassionate for the Harage people. I am compassionate because I met them. But does that mean the rest of us are off the hook? No, you're off the hook because you don't feel compassionate about them. You don't feel motivated to go and reach them. It's not our primary motivation. What is it? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. That's why we give. That's why we go. That's why it's so important here. 
Because the glory of God is important. When we go and we see this whole world that is worshiping, but they're not worshiping the God who deserves all glory and honor and praise, it, it pulls at our heart. It's like a dagger in our heart. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian scientists, materialists, socialists, atheists, they're all worshiping. Their worship goes to Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, money, government, and self. And every time one comes to faith in Jesus Christ, God receives the worship he is due. And we sit there and say, because we live to glorify him, then we want to see all the glory in the world go to him. And let me finish with this. One day the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will, he, will gain, he will be given his glory. Some of them will be meant to bow. Some will bow at their own desire and love for him. But until that day, you and I are called to be a part of his plan and we must go. For his glory. For his infinite, surpassing, supreme Lord. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you and we praise you.